Well, as we begin together, let me invite you to take out your phone as we start. And join us as I invited you two weeks ago to visit this site, menti.com, to put in this code. And I have another question for you. So when you pull this up, it'll bring up a menu and you can select some answers, you can put in some answers. And the question is, how would the typical Vancouverite describe the good life? How would the typical Vancouverite describe the good life? You can give a one-word answer. I think you can take up to 24 characters. You can give a few words if you want in there. I think you can give up to three answers. And we're going to populate a word cloud a little bit later to see those answers. So you can, as I begin the sermon, you can continue and listen in whenever you're ready. Well, growing up, my family enjoyed doing car trips and camping trips down the west coast of the United States. One of the favorite places that we liked to stop and visit for the day was Cannon Beach in Oregon. Our family would park at the parking lot. My sister and I would jump out of the car, throw our swimsuits on, and we would run to the beach, play in the sand, and we loved playing in the ocean. I remember this one time, we were playing in the ocean together, and the waves became larger and larger and larger as we were playing. For some reason, I got turned around and distracted, and as I did, a rogue wave came in and knocked me over and knocked me off my feet and pulled me underwater and upside down. And initially, my eyes were closed as I was pulled under the water holding my breath. And then I opened them felt that sense of complete disorientation. Unable to know which way was up and which way was down. And in fact, it happens to be that the direction that I thought was up, the way I was looking, happened actually to be down. In that moment, a sense of fear and panic came within me. Fortunately, I didn't struggle and panic and try to swim my way to what I thought was up because I, in fact, would have just tried to swim closer to the sandy bottom. But I relaxed and allowed the air in my lungs to take me up to the surface. But I remember two feelings. One, the sense of great relief, taking that first breath when you realize that, in fact, all right, I've come back up to the surface. This is right side up. But also that real sense of disorientation under the water and fear. Which way is up and which way is down? And when you realize that the way you thought was up is actually down, that complete sense of disorientation. We're starting a new sermon series today, here at 10th, called The Paradoxes of Jesus. Have you ever read scripture, especially the words of Jesus, and those words seem confusing or strange, upside down, or even like a paradox? If you have, then this sermon series is for you. Over the next number of weeks, we're going to be unpacking some of the hard sayings of Jesus, some of the paradoxical sayings of Jesus, his sayings that may seem to us like they're upside down on the surface. And the invitation for us through this sermon series is twofold. First, to be compelled by Jesus and to be drawn towards him. And second, to grow in trust. That even when we feel like Jesus' words may seem strange, upside down or paradoxical, 
that in fact, when we enter into them together, they're wise, life-giving, and joyful. We're going to begin together in Jesus' Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, in a section called the Beatitudes. If you have your Bible, you can open up to Matthew 5, whether it's a physical Bible, a virtual one on your phone, you can also follow along on the screen behind me. Matthew 5, verses 1 through 3. Now, when Jesus saw the crowds, he went up on a mountainside and sat down. His disciples came to him, and he began to teach them. He said, Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Let's pray. Jesus, we thank you for these words that seem to us on the surface strange and confusing. How can the blessed be poor? As we enter in, Lord, may we seek your wisdom, your life, and your joy in them. May you help us to see how these words, which seem upside down, actually turn the world right side up. We trust that you are here in this room with us right now by your presence in the Holy Spirit. Amen. The passage that I just read from, as I mentioned earlier, is from the Sermon on the Mount, from a section called the Beatitudes. For many of you, this passage and this section will seem both familiar and strange. It'll seem familiar because the Beatitudes in the Sermon on the Mount are some of Jesus' most well-known, most memorized, and most spoken passages. So they'll feel familiar to many of us. But I think they'll also feel very strange because in many ways they are strange. As we'll see and we'll unpack together, they seem to be upside down from the way that many of us and our culture see the world. So for many of us, they will feel both familiar and they will feel kind of strange. They'll feel like a paradox. They don't seem to match the way that most of us tend to see the world, or maybe how our neighbors or friends or colleagues see the world. And so what we want to do is we want to enter into this passage together slowly. And we're going to take some time to retranslate this beatitude in a way that is faithful to the original language, the original text, but also helps to contemporize some of the language so that we can enter well into that together. And again, the invitation is to see that even though Jesus' words on the surface, blessed are the poor in spirit, may seem strange, difficult, paradoxical, upside down, that his words are in fact right side up. So let's start together. Blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed, blessed. Blessed is the Greek word makarios. In fact, beatitude means blessing. That's why when we open the beatitudes, it says blessed be, blessed be, blessed be. But the word behind that word in the original language is makarios, blessed. And in one sense of the word, it does mean blessed. It means blessed, fortunate, or lucky but maybe a more contemporary, holistic way of understanding that word would be to say 
the good life. The good life belongs to those who are poor in spirit. The good life. The author James K. Smith, who's also a professor at a major university in the United States, he said that everyone lives out of a picture of the good life. Every one of you has a picture of what the good life looks like, and you are seeking to fulfill that in your life. Everyone does. Each of you, every person in this city, everyone lives with an image of what the good life looks like, and we're seeking to fulfill it. So if we were to ask a typical Vancouverite, what does the good life look like, what might they say? That was the question that I asked you right as we began. And so let's pull up that word cloud now. What would the good life look like for the typical Vancouverite? <laughs> Sabine, do you have your binoculars? I can try and see some of the smaller ones there. Okay, let me pull some of these up for us. Okay. Right at the center. Nature. Family. Good food. Freedom. Work-life balance. Oh, that's very Vancouver. Health, clean, love, Oreos, peace, coffee with Pastor Craig. You can do that. <laughs> you can fulfill the good life this week. <laughs> it's called the Connect Card. <laughs> do it. Love to have coffee with you. Skiing, another food, stable housing, affordable housing, financial stability, diversity, nature, emotional well-being, good health, summer. I think many of us feel that in Vancouver in the winter, summer. <laughs> Every person lives with a picture of what the good life looks like. And we're seeking to fulfill that every day. This question, what would a typical Vancouverite think of as the good life, caused me to think. And so I wrote out what I think would be the Beatitudes of Vancouver. For a typical Vancouverite, what would the state of blessing be for most of them out there? I wrote five. Let me read these to you. The good life belongs to those who own a house, for they will experience security. The good life belongs to those who eat an all-organic vegan diet, for they will be healthy. At the first, the 9 a.m. service, someone said they'll be hungry. <laughs> the good life belongs to those who have many followers, for they will have influence. The good life belongs to those who are self-confident, for they will know where they're going. The good life belongs to the self-reliant, for they will take what they need. We all live with an image of what is the good life. What does Jesus say the good life looks like? The good life belongs to those who are poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Really? Really? I thought we just said the opposite. The good life belongs to those who are wealthy, for they can buy a house. The good life belongs to the self-reliant. The good life belongs to the self-confident. The good life belongs to those who are poor in spirit. Really? Feels like a paradox, at least for how most of us usually see the world feels like a tension. And so what does Jesus mean when he says 
The good life belongs to those who are poor in spirit. What does it look like to be poor in spirit? Well, some of you may know if you read Luke's gospel alongside Matthew's that where Matthew says blessed or the good life belongs to the poor in spirit, Luke says blessed be the poor. Blessed be the poor in spirit. Blessed be the poor. Well, which one is it? It's blessed be the poor. It's blessed be the poor in spirit. Yes. Yes. It's actually both. Behind both the poor and the poor in spirit, Jesus is pointing us to the same reality, the same state, the same place. The place where we recognize that of our own strength, energy, and will, we cannot get ourselves out of the place where we are. And we're in need, therefore, of someone outside of ourselves to come into our life, to come into our story, and offer us help. That by our own strength, initiative, our own will, we cannot truly solve our own problems. That someone needs to come in and to help us. When the gospel writer Luke says, blessed be the poor, it cannot only mean the financially poor, because nowhere in the scriptures does it hold up the financially poor as the ideal state? And Jesus never over-spiritualizes poverty. In both the poor and the poor in spirit, it's pointing behind what Jesus is saying. A place where we recognize that we have a deep need of someone to come into our life, into our story, and to help us. Now, for some of you, the word needy is not a positive term, is it? Ah, oh, that person's so needy. Ah, oh, he or she, they're, you're kind of needy, aren't you? It's not really a positive word for many of us. Yet for Jesus, it is. It's the recognition that, the honest recognition, that we have the need of help beyond ourselves, someone or someone else to come into the reality of our story and to help us. The good life belongs to those who are needy for God. It could be another way of translating poor in spirit. The good life belongs to those who are needy for God. For those who recognize that they can't solve all their own problems by their own will, strength, or initiative. But they need someone else to come into their story to help. Feels like a paradox. Somehow the empty will be full. The hungry will be satisfied. And I actually like that example of hunger when we're talking about being poor in spirit. If you were to talk to a, a doctor and tell them that you were physically hungry, unless there's something specifically wrong, and, and which there might be, but in most situations when you're hungry, being hungry is actually a sign of health, isn't it? It means that things are working properly. Jesus is saying when we are hungry for God, when we are needy, when we recognize the poverty of our own state and we need for him to come into our lives, that's actually a sign of spiritual and personal health. The good life belongs to those who are needy for God. Throughout the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes, and throughout the words of Jesus, Jesus is continually turning the view of the Pharisees the view of the average first century person and our own view of the good life 
upside down, helping us to see that what we initially thought was right side up is in fact upside down. Jesus is helping us to see ourselves and our world well. A couple weeks ago, we hosted a workshop here at 10th called Financial Wisdom for Estate Planning. And in the workshop, we, we had a guest speaker come in who was talking about how to think Christianly, how to think wisely about our finances, especially at the end of life. This caused me afterwards to go home and to open up my RSP and take a look at that as well, to look and think about my own future. Because I think Jesus was asking us the question, what do we invest ourselves in? And so let me invite us into a hypothetical question, okay? To be clear, this does not reflect my financial reality or my financial plans. This is a hypothetical reality that I'm inviting you to do as a thought experiment around my finances, okay? So, listen in. If I invested or had invested already $50,000 in some kind of investment plan or investment portfolio, and I invested every month $500, so I have $50,000, every month I'm investing $500, at a hoped-for rate of return of appreciation of 4%, over 60 years, how much would I have, okay? $500,000, $600,000 or $800,000? Just take a second, think about it. Some of you who are math or accounting wizards, you've got it. What would it be? What the answer is? 60 years from now, with a 4% rate of return, if I put in $50,000 initially and add monthly $500, 60 years from now, the answer is nothing because I'll be dead. <laughs> I likely will not live to see another 60 years. Some of you think the Canadian government has a high tax rate. The end-of-life end tax rate is 100%. Some of you will spend the next 20, 30, 40, or 50 years investing in your financial future so that you, at those end of years, can find the good life. And yet that vision of what the good life is is so fickle, isn't it? It could be lost in a moment. It could be lost in a moment due to bad investments. It could be lost in a moment because the stock market crashes, or it could be lost in a moment because you pass away. This doesn't mean that Jesus doesn't think that you should have insurance or RRSPs or take care of those who are under your care and responsibility. But Jesus is asking us, what is your vision of the good life? And where and how do you invest yourself? If your picture of the good life looks like spending the last 10 or 15 years of my life traveling with financial and personal freedom, or buying a house, or even having a big family, if your vision of the good life looks like any of those things which are good in and of themselves, then you will likely not accomplish and find the good life that you hope for. Mark Buchanan is a writer, a pastor, a theologian. Last year, he was our Weekend Away retreat speaker. And I believe it was at the Weekend Away he shared a story last year 
of him at the end of his life. He was approaching God at what he said, the pearly gates. And as he approached God, he realized that he was naked. So probably a, a nightmare for some people more than a dream. But he was approaching God. And as he realized his physical nakedness, no clothes on his body, he actually realized a greater nakedness with on, with, about him. A space and place of complete and pure vulnerability. Not only did he not have his clothes to cover him, but if you know Mark Buchanan, he's a, an accomplished and well-known writer and speaker. He holds a position, an, an academic position at a major university in Canada that standing before God, he couldn't point to any of those other things. That he was in a state of perfect vulnerability before God, completely and absolutely naked of any accomplishment before him. And many of us cover ourselves, not just with clothes, but with accomplishments, degrees, maybe promotions or jobs or financial security as a a way of clothing ourselves in what the good life looks like. Or clothing ourselves so that other people look at us and say, that person has the good life. But the end of life tax is 100%. And all of us come to God vulnerable and naked, taking the same amount of our things, whether we live in a penthouse or we live in the park, whether we work as a CEO or we don't work at all, we all come the same to God, naked, vulnerable, and exposed towards him. So what does it look like? What does it look like then to enter into Jesus' words here? The good life belongs to those who are needy for God. The good life belongs... The good life belongs to those who recognize the real and true poverty in and of themselves. What does it look like to be poor and needy for God's presence? A friend of mine sees a spiritual director every month. Spiritual director, for those of you who don't know, is someone who's usually paid to sit with you to help you discern the voice, presence, and direction of Jesus in your life. I have a spiritual director who I see monthly as well. It's a great help and joy. But my friend had just started spiritual direction. And he shared with me that the first number of months coming in to his spiritual director, he was sharing again and again how much he felt like a failure. Again and again, how much he felt like a failure in his relationship with God. And a number of months in, this spiritual director wisely said, let's just stop there. For the last number of months, you've come into my office and shared how much you feel like a failure towards God. And I I appreciate that real sentiment that you have. But let's reframe and relook at that place. Behind your feelings of being a failure is a recognition of your deep need for God and your desire to honor and to love him well. What if rather than being a place of failure, it's a place of opportunity and blessing? What if a place of lack, it's a place to recognize and to receive a great gift? I think that's exactly what Jesus is saying. 
Because there's a third part to this beatitude. Jesus says, the good life belongs to those who are needy for God. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. What's the kingdom of heaven? Well, throughout the scriptures, the kingdom of heaven is the inbreaking presence of God into the world. And in the New Testament, that gains clarity. It's the coming presence of Jesus. The good life belongs to those who are needy for God because every time God will show up, Jesus will break through the most difficult, desperate, and hard places of our lives every time he shows up. What are those difficult, hard, and desperate places in your life? Where if you're honest, you feel so out of control and so needy. And you recognize that honestly, by your own strength alone, you cannot do it. What if rather than being a place of failure, they're a place of opportunity? Not a place of lack, but a place to receive a blessing and a great gift. And what is that gift? Jesus tells us. It's his very presence. Jesus says this, in fact, later in Matthew 7, just two chapters later. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone, 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 everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened to you. Everyone who seeks finds. Everyone who knocks, the door will be opened to you. What if the place of your greatest desperation and need and lack, maybe even feelings of failure, was not in fact a place of failure, but an opportunity to receive a great blessing? Jesus says, blessed are you. You recognize that in reality, all of us are poor. We all come to the end of our life with the same thing. And there's only one thing that we can take with us beyond this life, namely our relationship with God and his very presence. Blessed are you. You recognize the truth of this world. To you, God will not, never be withheld. God's presence will always be offered and you will have a gift and a treasure that can never be taken away from you. Do you know what the posture of being poor in spirit is? It's communion. No matter how much money you make, what job you have, what family you come from, or your background, or your present state, we all come with open and empty hands. Every single one of us has the same in our hands. But we all come expecting and knowing that they will be filled by bread and by juice, representing the, the body and blood of Jesus. We all come empty and in need, and every time our cup is filled. Every time. I'd like to close with this story. A friend of mine shared a number of years ago that him and his wife were struggling with infertility. He shared honestly that he felt like a failure. 
as a husband, as a man, as a person. That every time he imagined what the good life looked like in the future, for him, it always looked like him and his partner having children. And yet, that image of what he thought the good life would look like was not matching up to their present reality. And he was sharing that with me. He was sharing that it has been a dark and difficult and desperate season where he, he longed for things to be different. But he shared with me too, even though it's been dark and difficult and desperate, it's also been one of the greatest places of blessing and gift and abundance. He shared that even though he knows that God may not give him and his partner the thing that they long for, that his vision of the good life may not be fulfilled, that God will give him something better and has been giving them something even better. Again and again and again, he shared with me that every time he comes, telling God honestly about his sense of lack, his feelings of failure and his desperate need, God shows up. What if our most desperate places, what if our neediest places, our most difficult and dark places were a place where we could receive a gift? We could recognize that in truth, there are so many things in this life that are beyond our control. It's a fact. Where we could recognize that all of us take the same things into the next life. And in our most desperate places, we can come honestly and come open and needy and say, Lord, give me your presence. Give me this treasure, something that can never or will ever be withheld. It can never be taken from us. Where are your greatest places of need? for your children, for yourselves, for your futures, for your finances, for your housing. Where are they? Maybe in them, it's an opportunity to ask and seek and knock. Always, for everyone, the door will be opened. Let's pray. Jesus, your words are words of wisdom and truth and life. And you turned our upside down world right side up. They're hard. But you are good and you are faithful and you are kind. And when we ask and we seek and we knock, you will never be withheld from us. A true treasure that can and will never be taken. So Jesus, we recognize that there are places in our lives where we are desperate. We're desperate for you to show up, for your presence to break through. So we say, come Lord Jesus. 
fill our empty hands with your very presence. Give us the gift that's always offered and can never be taken away. Amen.